I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about our current energy situation with respect to Saudi Arabia and its cuts in oil production, we have with us Dr. Joseph Mikat, who is the director of our energy and climate change program at CSIS. And we have with us Dr. John Alterman, who is, of course, our Middle East program director, Brzezinski chair in geostrategy and a senior vice president at CSIS. Two of my favorite all-time CSIS people on the same podcast. How could I get so lucky? Guys, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. You're too kind. So let's talk. I mean, there is a lot going on between Saudi Arabia, the United States, the rest of the world on oil and what it means in, in, in wake of Russia's war with Ukraine. John, I want to start with you. What has the U.S.-Saudi relationship looked like over the past few years and how have we arrived at this moment in which we're seeing rising tensions between uh, Washington and Riyadh? The Saudi-U.S. relationship has gone from bad to better to worse. Things were getting quite testy in the Obama administration. And I think the Saudis were starting to wonder whether the United States was going away, whether the United States had decided that with the energy transition beginning, the U.S. had decided it was about to abandon the Saudis. The Trump administration represented a a tremendous sense of relief for the Saudis that, in fact, the problem in their mind was just Obama. And President Trump was reinforcing the relationship that the Saudis had had with the United States for 75 years, and they were tremendously relieved. With the Biden administration, the return of many of the same officials from the Obama administration, the Saudis have become agitated once again. Some of the same officials from the Obama administration became agitated with the Saudis. There was an effort to try to put this on a better course with the president's July trip to Saudi Arabia to to create intergovernmental actions that on a bureaucratic level would get things aligned and wouldn't require a close personal relationship between the president and the crown prince. But what I think we've seen in the last couple months is that has unraveled. There are charges thrown back and forth. I think there is a sense of mutual disrespect we're seeing on both sides. I think whenever the Saudis hear Jake Sullivan talking about American values, they take it as a slap in the face. I think we are in for a period of of pretty heavy sledding if the Democrats conclude that the Saudis tried to meddle in American politics if the Saudis reinforce their conclusion that Joe Biden is only in office for two more years and they're already looking beyond him, I think we may be in for some very rough times. Joseph, you've written about this with John and and you've spoken about it recently. The Saudi Minister of State for Foreign Affairs said, quote, the idea that Saudi Arabia would do this, meaning cut oil production to harm the U.S. or to be in any way politically involved is absolutely not correct at all. What do you think of that statement and, and, and what do you think the situation really is? Uh, so I think that 
it's important to remember that Saudi Arabia views its role in the global energy system as quite sacrosanct. And that is that being is one of the only countries that's made the necessary investments to be able to dial oil production up and down and respond to market conditions, they can provide a stabilizing force on global energy markets that other exporters, including the United States, have trouble doing, just don't have the same responsiveness. And I think Saudis take that role very seriously. And when you look at this decision, there are reasons why, looking at the macroeconomic forecast for next year, countries would, you know, they would want to reduce production to hold some in reserve and be able to supply it if necessary, but otherwise keep the price relatively high. The challenge is that the way that the OPEC plus decision took place, the way it was marketed, the interaction between the U.S. government and the Saudi government meant that it's hard to make a decision on market fundamentals without a lot of these other factors that John has raised being implicated as well. And just to add to that, what we've seen in the press just in the last few days are some pretty stark accusations by the Biden administration that they had promises from the Saudis and the promises were flouted. I'm not sure exactly what the strategy is talking about that, but it does seem to me that it's it's personalizing the relationship much more. The Saudis have been trying to say, look, we're just making an economic judgment. And the Biden team is attacking the veracity of that claim, attacking the veracity of what Adel Joubert, the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs and former ambassador to Washington, has been saying, and it, it looks increasingly, I was at a meeting today with, with some of my peers from other think tanks with a, a foreign a senior official, and, and people said it, it's kind of like high school. I think it's a little bit like junior high school. It is really very personal, and it's very personal about the president and the crown prince seem to genuinely dislike each other. According to uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week, the crown prince mocks President Biden and his intellectual abilities. Uh, I certainly, when I visited Saudi Arabia in June, I was met at one point by a Saudi in a t-shirt with Adam Schiff's picture and a clown nose on it, a remarkably partisan action for an American you haven't met before. This is somebody who's, who's, close, to the, who's close to the royal court. And I think there is a partisanship that is sinking into this. A Republican in, in this meeting made the claim that, that the Republicans have Saudi Arabia and the Democrats have Iran. I think that's a that's a strange way to characterize it, but I think Very that's strange. But I think it's probably the way the Saudis see it too, is you have Democratic administrations who they think are courting Iran, Republican administrations who court Saudi Arabia, and not surprisingly, people around the Crown Prince prefer the Republicans. So John Given all this, how can the United States and the Biden administration in particular not take this personally? You know, the, the move that Saudi Arabia did certainly seemed to try to elevate gas prices in the United States just before the midterms. You know, maybe that, and Joseph, you can weigh in on whether that really makes a difference or not uh, in the short term. But, you know, it's certainly, the optics of this certainly seem, if you're a Biden administration official or a Democrat, 
that this was done in order to hurt the Democrats. Well, look, I think you can make an argument, as, as Joseph suggested, there is a legitimate economic argument that the soft global economic picture, the fear of recession in Europe, all those things, the slowness of China's economic recovery, argue for more caution in the global markets. It seems to me that the issue was not so much the decision, but the way it was a process foul, the way the decision was revealed to the Biden team, the way the decision was was rolled out. I think if the Saudis had tried to soften the blow, tried to telegraph, tried to reassure, handle it like diplomats and grownups, frankly, I think you would have seen a different outcome. But I was at a, a, a meeting with some senior Saudi officials who were in town a couple of weeks ago, and I got this sense of almost pride that we don't have to tell the United States what we're going to do. The United States is not a member of OPEC. We only talk to members of OPEC about what we're going to do with oil production. Uh, the United States has no right to know. I think that sort of almost high-handedness, you could argue arrogance, toward the country that really is principally responsible for Saudi security outside of Saudi Arabia is a sign that, that the Saudis either thought they could get away with it or thought it was appropriate. And I think what you're seeing is the Biden administration looking for ways to signal displeasure without undermining its own interests. We can talk a little bit, if you're interested, about sort of relying on Congress to do some of that. But I th to me, the the, the main issue is it's a process foul on the part of the Saudis. They could have done this quietly and not harmed the relationship, but it feels to me they did it loudly and suddenly, either indifferent to the relationship or hostile to the relationship. And I think you're going to see the, the Biden team's looking for ways to make its displeasure uh, known. So, Joseph, what how, how does this cut affect the United States energy relations with Saudi Arabia and with the Middle East more broadly? So I think it's important to talk a little bit about the context of the timing, right? So oil markets in the recovery from COVID and then in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine have been really dynamic and volatile. And I would say that if the justification for this cut is economic uncertainty and fears of recession, you know, there's just a wide band of uncertainty on what could happen in the future. You also cannot set aside the fact that the EU and the US are looking to find ways to reduce Russian oil revenues, which are seen as a primary driver of the war chest that Putin is able to use in his uh, conflict against or in his war against Ukraine. And OPEC plus, which includes Russia, right, signaling that it's going to reduce production, which is largely a production cut that is going to be executed by, by Saudi Arabia and, and other Gulf countries, sort of indicated, I think, to the administration also, like, we're not really on your side in terms of the manipulation of these markets and, and reducing Russian revenues, right? Because a lot of what the EU and the US are trying to do might take Russian barrels off the market. And their argument is, well, we, we need a lot more supply if we're going to do if we're going to do that, because we want to accomplish two things. 
reduce Russian revenues and not ruin the global economy. The timing of all this is very challenging because the sanctions packages that the EU has passed or the price cap that the US is arguing should be used on Russian exports are all sort of happening in the same window that the OPEC plus decisions are, are starting to apply to. And those tensions are very hard to separate from the broader and longer term US-Saudi relationships. What does this mean for our energy relationship? I mean, the US import, trades oil with, with Saudi Arabia, right? But we're not the huge destination we once were. Saudi trades a lot of oil with China, India, and other countries because we're such a large producer now. But the, but the reality is that we're both contributors into a global pool and that pool has gotten slightly smaller. And if the US wants to accomplish this other basket of goals related to Russia, has to probably grow smaller still. The Biden administration is looking for partners who can help them on that side of things. So how does this change our energy policy, if at all, in the short term? In the short term, I'm not sure that there is much change. I think it is possible that the US or the Biden administration will look for ways to be more supportive of our domestic industry, right? And find ways for the US production to, to fill more of that gap. It can't match what the countries of, of OPEC and in particular Gulf, Gulf countries can do. But you could see some, some adjustments on the part of the Biden administration looking for ways to be a little bit more supportive of US industry. John, Tom Friedman has a column out which actually cites research done by Joseph Schopp here at CSIS. The thrust of Tom's column is that we're trying to do too much when it comes to energy. We're trying to deal with climate change. We're trying to produce more. We're trying to be independent of Russia. The United States and our allies shouldn't be beholden to Russia. What do you make of all that? And what can the United States do where does it leave the United States and its allies in terms of the war with, with Ukraine and the energy crisis in Europe? I would put it differently. I think we're having a problem aligning tactical and strategic needs, that there are some changes which will take decades, some changes which will take days, and we're not good at doing decades and days in the same planning session. <laughs> and it no and it, and it seems like that's the, that's the challenge is there are things that are all about this week i mean the way they perceive the saudi led opec plus cut is that's about the election that that takes place in less than 2 weeks but there are broader issues of what the energy transition looks like of what china's interest in the middle east will be in 10 or 20 years and whether that contravenes us interests or is aligned with U.S. interests, a whole set of questions about what the U.S. relationship to the Middle East is going to be like in 10, 20, and 30 years, and what the energy transition is going to look like, and whether it's going to be Middle East-centered, and you're going to have a huge focus on green hydrogen coming out of the Middle East, or whether it's going to be diversified. I mean, I think there are very short-term things and very long-term things, and we keep tripping over doing them both simultaneously. The Ukraine war is an example of something that people are trying to fine tune every single day. But I wrote a piece, as you know, about a month ago saying the energy transition is likely to make the United States and the world more dependent on the Middle East before it makes it less dependent on the Middle East. And how do you incorporate that into a strategy that's all about stopping Vladimir Putin 
this week. And I think that's where that's where our challenge is. If I can echo John's points, I, I think a lot of what he says is is salient to me, right? You've got a couple trends going on at the same time that we just haven't done a great job on the U.S. side of integrating into our strategic thinking. One is that a lot of people think the energy transition means we can get off oil and gas and we don't have to worry about countries in the Middle East anymore. And that's just not going to be the case, right? Turning over energy infrastructure takes a long time. We can move as quickly as we can, but you're just not going to have an energy system that doesn't involve OPEC, OPEC plus and Saudi Arabia for decades. You're just not. And even if we're the world's largest producer, yes, even if we are the world's largest producer, right? Being a huge energy producer doesn't create energy independence for the United States, nor does it create the swing capacity that that you have in these in these countries, the ability to turn production up and down. But the fact that we're a large producer does mean that our relationship over the long term is changing on energy. And that's not just an energy transition story, right? The U.S. being a major producer has given us a lot of ability to sanction energy coming from other countries. And it has enabled the Biden administration to make a lot of market manipulating and market stabilizing moves using the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's this big store of of petroleum that we have in caves in the United States. And the Biden administration has used, has been releasing oil from that to help temper markets and calm them as the oil price shot up after the Russian-Ukraine war started. OPEC and OPEC Plus, one of the other dynamics going on here is like, they're used to being the market setter and the market stabilizing force. And so having what we're formerly importing and consuming nations starting to play a role in a fairly active government intervention is also sort of a new ground that I think both parties are, are coming to grips with, how we're, how we're gonna manage the market from both sides. So was it a strong move for the Biden administration to release more oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Is that the best strategy to deal with this? I think when they did it, it was probably a judicious choice. It definitely helped calm markets, but it's not an everlasting resource, right? The The purpose of that reserve is to have oil on hand in the event of some sort of national security emergency. And so while the stock is relatively healthy and you probably, and because we produce so much, you probably don't need to hold as much in the pantry, so to speak, as we used to, we can't burn it all away. And we got to refill what we just took out. Yeah. And the Biden administration has actually made an announcement that they're planning to refill at much lower prices than the ones that they've been selling at. This ends up being a source of government revenue, but it also provides a sort of soft floor on the oil price. And then in the event that we do see economic challenges or a big drop in the oil price, that should provide some stability for our producers to keep investing against, even in a world where there's a lot of economic uncertainty. But again, the U.S. government having an active role in oil markets in that way is relatively new ground. And the other new ground, which has been striking to me in the last couple of weeks, is I have never seen a Saudi oil minister who is so sharply critical of the United States as this Saudi oil minister is. I mean, I'm used to Saudi oil ministers who are very judicious, who are very cautious about really upsetting any key market. And and I think this minister is, you know, partly because he's the king's son and not merely a technocrat. But I think it also reflects a different attitude in the kingdom that 
that the minister is happy to be sharply critical of the United States in a way that, in my recollection, is completely unprecedented in Saudi history. Other Saudis might be a little more critical, but not the Minister of Oil. John, what do you expect Congress to do about this? Congress has traditionally not been so fond of Saudi Arabia. They've been quite critical historically. What do you think Congress will do, and what can we expect from them in the future? First thing is it all depends what happens in the midterm elections. We're going to have a lame duck session in late November into December, whether that's about Democrats desperately trying to to get things done, whether it's about Democrats trying to punish the people who they think put them into the minority. I don't know where we're going to be. I don't know what the mood is going to be. There's a lot to do. But as you've said, there, there's a lot of hostility to Saudi Arabia in Congress. Hostility to Saudi Arabia is one of the few things that lots and lots of members of Congress agree on. It's a bipartisan value. It is a bipartisan value. Don't forget, in President Obama's eight years in office, Congress overrode one veto, and it was a veto of a bill that the House passed by a voice vote unexpectedly that made it easier for American victims of terrorism to to sue the government of Saudi Arabia. So to me, I think what the Biden administration is hoping to do is to get some time to see what happens, let Congress be the bad cop, let members of Congress and and senators running for re-election say things that give the Saudis a chance to walk things back and then sort of see where we are in November, December. That may be a smart strategy. The danger of it is judging what the boundaries are and what Congress might try to do. I could certainly see a mood coming where people say we're just gonna we're just gonna ping the Saudis because we can, because it's gonna be popular, because we're angry at them. And what the president does in that circumstance, especially if you see this sort of worsening rather than improvement of relations in the interregnum could put us in a difficult place. I think that the president's instinct is to disdain the Saudis rather than punish them. But we may find ourselves in a situation where the president feels that to maintain his credibility, there has to be some genuine punishment. And if that punishment comes out of Congress, uh, it could be messy because Congress's legislation is sometimes quite messy. Well, what does that punishment look like? I mean, what, what members of Congress are talking about is refusing to sell Saudi Arabia sort of ammunition for some of their, their anti-aircraft systems for pulling back. U.S. troops are doing training in Saudi Arabia. We've heard rumors that the U.S. might discourage investment in Saudi Arabia and try to, to, to make it more difficult for the Saudis to attract the U.S. investment that the Saudis want to attract. I could imagine any number of things. What is striking to me is that the Biden administration, when it came into office in 2021, said, let's take a pause on Saudi Arabia and let's give ourselves a year and figure out where things should go. And then I think they decided we can't ignore Saudi Arabia. We have to engage. And that is what teed up the July visit. It feels to me like we may be headed more toward a let's pull back and let's give it some more time. I'm not sure why four months after you essentially completed a study 
of, of what our strategy to Saudi Arabia should be. You have to start another study of strategy towards Saudi Arabia. I think from the Saudi perspective, the danger point is when I hear Jake Sullivan talk, Jake Sullivan likes to talk about testing propositions. He's a national security advisor. He's trained as a lawyer, and he likes to talk about testing propositions. When he spoke to me at CSIS in June of 2020 about Saudi policy, he talked about testing a lot of propositions. I think the danger for the Saudis is if the July visit and the aftermath were the test of the propositions and the Saudis failed the test, that could suggest a deeper swing in U.S. strategy than the Saudis anticipate. My assessment is the Saudis are looking beyond the Biden administration. They said, we'll just hold on for two years and it'll be fine. But that may be wrong. Yeah, I was going to say, Joseph, can the Saudi Arabian government afford to alienate the United States to the extent that they seem to be willing to alienate the United States at this time? I do think that what we need to find is a way to grapple with these two new realities, right? The long-term shift toward clean energy introduces a lot of demand uncertainty and market uncertainty for Saudi Arabia. And we understand that they're incentivized to get uh, money out of the oil industry while they can and spend it on economic diversification. I think we also need to recognize that the U.S. has emerging clout in global energy markets and as our climate policies play out, may even have more if we can export more abroad. But we haven't yet articulated a picture for how the two countries are going to work together over the course of the next few decades to drive energy transition and to mutually benefit from that transition as much as possible. With that longer term view, it gives you more ability to sort of have a hand on the rudder as these intermediate challenges come up. But this, the July visit was intended to do that. It was intended to modernize the relationship, was intended to, to give us a whole set of goals, a whole set of cooperative activities going forward that would give us an agenda for a robust intergovernmental relationship for the next 10, 20 years. And it may be that that agenda is running aground after just a few months amidst mutual accusations, mutual distrust, where that puts Saudi Arabia, which seems convinced that it can afford to be non-aligned in the world, and the United States, which may feel that if Saudi Arabia wants to be non-aligned, it should have a taste of what non-alignment looks and feels like. I think for the Saudis, that could get very uncomfortable. The Biden administration may not be able to do that, but they may, and I think if they do, the Saudis could be could be feeling much more insecure before they feel more secure. And this may be, I mean, either a learning process for the Saudis, or it could be a point of sharp divergence between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Saudis still talk lovingly about the meeting between King Abdulaziz ibn Saud and Franklin Roosevelt in 1945. And they talk about capturing that moment. And it feels to me like that moment is gone forever. And the Saudis may think that 
the Saudis may think the U.S. attitude is predictable going forward, and they may think they are able to shape it going forward, and neither one of those may be true. Gentlemen, a lot to think about here. Uh, really appreciate your insight. Really appreciate your time today. Andrew, thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 